This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is the Financial Times podcast in association with City Index. Financial companies have been fined £63 million so far this year, and there's more to come next week. But do these fines do any good? Even Britain's best-known fund manager has failed to make money. What's his outlook for 2012? And could property be a better bet next year? Lenders seem to think so as they launch yet more buy-to-let loans. All this to come in this week's FT Money Show. I'm Matthew Vincent. I'll be giving the lowdown on all of these money matters in downloadable form with my colleagues from FT Money, Elaine Moore. Hello. And Tanya Poli. Hi. And our special studio guest, Anthony Bolton, President of Investments for Fidelity Worldwide Investments and Manager of the Fidelity China Special Situations Fund. Hello. Let's start then with the money news. Last week, the Financial Services Authority fined HSBC a record £10.5 million and ordered it to pay £29 million in compensation for mis-selling long-term care investments. It was the latest in a series of million-pound fines. Earlier this year, Barclays was fined £7.7 million for mis-selling so-called cautious investments. Coots, the Queen's Bank, was fined £6.3 million for selling inappropriate bonds. And Credit Suisse had to pay £5.9 million for failings in the sale of structured products. All of this has taken the total level of fines imposed on retail financial services providers to £63 million in the year to date. But the regulator is not finished there. FT Money has learnt that another major multi-million pound fine is to be announced next week. But while some are pleased that the FSA is getting tough on mis-selling and other forms of consumer detriment... Consumer groups are questioning whether these fines do any good, especially as they effectively reduce the amount companies have to pay to fund this regulation. Elaine, the fines sound impressive and they sound like a bit of a deterrent. Do you think they are? Well, it's this final point that you mentioned. That's what we've been digging into this week. So at the very beginning of the week, when we were talking about the huge FSA fines that have been handed out so far this year, so the £10.5 million fine handed out to HSBC for mis-selling these care bonds to their elderly and disabled customers to pay for care home fees, um, we talked about where the money actually goes when a fine is paid. So we know that the FSA requires a company to pay the fine within 14 days, have to be very prompt about it. But once that money has been paid in, 
we looked around and, and we're asking one other, well, where does it go? And what we found is that it goes to paying for the running costs of the FSA. So the customers, you and me, or the elderly clients of HSBC that were missold the bonds, don't see any of that money. Although I suppose it is fair to say that um, where customers have lost money, sometimes um, companies are made to compensate them as well as paying a fine. So HSBC had to pay $29 million, I think it was. Absolutely. So that's the redress. And that's up to the companies themselves have to go back and look through their, their books and find out how much money they should be paying out to customers. So that's sort of a separate thing to the fines. So the fines are supposed to be a deterrent. So what they're actually supposed to do is have an impact on the, the name of the company. So the idea is that if you're slapped with a £10.5 million fine, you're standing amongst your peers is uh, is hit badly. You therefore have an incentive to uh, have a look at the way that you run your business in the future. And presumably the, the fine should reduce the profitability of the company, which means that the, the shareholders should bear their um, responsibility for the uh, for the mis-selling or whatever that, that, that has gone on. And presumably the, the profit margins are lower, then bonuses should be lower and the employees should not be benefiting. But this idea that the money goes to cover the FSA's costs presumably means that the more fines it levies, the less other companies have to pay to cover the cost of regulation. So companies will benefit from other companies mis-selling. That can't be right. Well, the the worst state the the financial institutions are in, the more fines they pay out, the bigger the discount for other companies within the sector on the running costs of the FSA that they then eventually have to pay for the next year. So if we look at last year, so last year, this record-beating year, £89 million worth of fines were handed out by the FSA across the industry. What that then meant was that for uh, quite a few firms, the the bill that they had to pay to the FSA came right down. For IFAs, I think they got about a 10% discount on the fees they had to pay to the FSA for the following year. So that's for this year, 2011-2012. So we're by no means saying that FSA fines are a good thing for companies. This is this is not at all our argument or the argument of the uh, consumer groups. What the consumer groups did say, though, is that so take HSBC example. HSBC is is handed out a fine. They will not benefit from the reduction in the overall levy. So no, for the next year. no discount for HSBC. No discount for right. them. But Barclays, who were handed a seven point seven million pound fine earlier in the year, they will benefit from the discount from the HSBC fine and HSBC will benefit from the Barclays fine. The size of the fines, the bigger the fines, the less that the industry has to pay to the FSA in total for the next year. And and what do consumer groups say about that? Do they think that this is a very healthy state of affairs, that the the more companies get fined? In other words, the more consumer detriment, the better it is for companies. Unsurprisingly, they do not think that that is a good thing. And they also don't think that um, that people are aware of this. A lot of people I've spoken to this week said that they assume that the fines would just go to the pockets of the people that were um, missold products or given poor investment advice. And when they found out that that's not the case, they were surprised and uh, surprised the fact that this is an extra penalty handed to companies. This is just part of a a levy that they would pay anyway. Consumer groups say that if the money's not going to go back to individual investors, then it should at least be spent on something that will benefit individuals. So something like financial education. So it could be a bit like damages that are awarded in court cases. Over above the compensation, you get a little bit extra to do some good in some way. Yes, rather than it being used to pay for the court. Elaine, thank you very much indeed. And uh, for more on what happens to these fines and 
whether they actually do bring about um, any change or any good, make sure you read Elaine's analysis in the money section of this weekend's FT and online at ft.com forward slash money. Still to come on the show, is property investing making a comeback? First, though, fund managers, or rather the best-known fund manager in Britain who now resides in Hong Kong. Anthony Bolton began managing the Fidelity Special Situations Fund back in 1979, and over the ensuing 27 years that he remained its manager, it was the top-performing fund in its sector. He retired in 2008 to become a columnist for FT Money, but in April 2010 he was tempted out of retirement by what he described as an opportunity simply too great to pass up, and that opportunity was investing in China. His new fund, China Special Situations, launched in April 2010. But it saw its net asset value fall by 28% in the six months to September this year, against a 25% drop in the MSCI China index. So, Anthony, looking back at Mm. 2011 um, and the performance of your China Special Situations Fund, how do you feel about the last 12 months? Yeah, I know. I've been disappointed. It's been a tough year, and particularly the last six months or so. Now, of course, it's not unique to China most markets have been challenging, but China's been particularly challenging. And what would you say the main challenges that are you know, unique to China have been? Yeah. Obviously, in a down market, the fund is geared, and uh, I have a big exposure to medium and smaller stocks, which are the, the areas that I particularly like. And they tend to be higher beta. So in a down market, they go down more than others. That's been the main thing. Looking at China... There have been some challenges in terms of the the quality of the companies and the information that we get. It was something that I was aware of before I went out there, but in certain cases it's been even more of a challenge than I first anticipated. So do you think you, in some ways, underestimated the, the due diligence problems that, that you'd encounter? Yes, I think I went into it, and particularly on, on certain groups of stocks, some of the US-listed ones, thinking that it was not going to be as big an issue and that the proportion of companies that were, to some extent, telling us false information was lower than it actually turned out to be. And has it made you question any of your stock-picking skills or the the particular approach that has worked so well in the UK for so many years? I think the basics are the same. I'm very much of the view that you can take the basics of how I manage money and, and transfer it to other markets, but some of the nuances are different. And so I've had to spend more time doing things. And and I did some of this work in the UK as well. So it, it's not unique to China, but I do more of it in China than I used to do. Let's look forward now to 2012. Um, you know, investors in your fund will be hoping that there can be a, a turnaround. What's your outlook? Well, I still remain as optimistic as ever about China and the case for China and optimistic about world stock markets. I've been of the view for some time that we're very much in a two-speed world where growth in, in the developed world is going to be low compared to what it's been in the past because of all the problems that everyone's aware of. But I think investors are going to be seeking growth. And although the emerging world and markets like China are not immune from lower growth in the West, I think the the relative higher growth is going to look very attractive. So I think that and plus the fact that I'm generally as a sort of contrarian when 
people are, when when they've given up on equities, when people are very cautious, when cash positions are high, and when valuations are very low. I found that's the time to be optimistic. But what makes you think that the way to capture the growth is to buy into Chinese companies? There are lots of people who say, well, why not buy a multinational company yeah. that's very large, it's, you know, it's, it's got a very strong balance sheet, it's paying lots of dividends, and it's getting lots of its revenues from yeah. emerging markets. That's a far better way to go about it. I, I wouldn't dismiss those companies, and I think those companies certainly have attractions. But my, my question is that still for most of them, perhaps they have a third of their earnings coming from emerging markets, you've still got two-thirds tied into the Western world. So I would rather have a portfolio of companies that have most of their earnings or, you know, 100% of their earnings coming from China or other similar markets. And just finally, for those you know, investors who are currently sitting on the sidelines and not investing in equities at mm. all, they've, they've had a, a dismal 10 years mm. or so, um, do you think that there's any chance that we will see a return of a, of a bull market and what, what might bring it about? Yes, I, I definitely do. And because I see all, all the sort of parameters that I look at that suggest that you've got the conditions for a bull market to start are out there. Now, the difficult thing is that it's very difficult to enthuse people when equities are low and the be- when it's the best time to buy. And often people, it's just the opposite. The time that they feel the most optimistic and when they want to buy is when valuations are very high and everyone telling them everything is wonderful. But I think for any long-term investor, they should be investing in times like we're seeing today when you've got, I think, great opportunities out there in the marketplace. Thanks, Anthony. And for more of Anthony's thoughts on the outlook for China, other emerging markets, Europe and the UK, as we head into 2012, you can read our exclusive interview in the money section of this weekend's FT and online at ft.com forward slash money. And finally today, property investing through buy-to-let mortgages. This week, Santander became the latest lender to enter the buy-to-let mortgage market with a range of products targeting non-professional landlords buying up to two buy-to-let properties. The banking group's move, which was announced on Monday, follows decisions by rivals to either return to the buy-to-let market or to start offering buy-to-let mortgages for the first time. In March, Skipton Building Society re-entered the buy-to-let market after withdrawing from the sector two years ago amid the credit crisis. Yorkshire Building Society launched its first range of mortgages for landlords in August, and Metro Bank has since signalled plans to offer buy-to-let loans. Tanya, looking at all of this activity, you'd think that the property market's about to take off, but the forecasts for house prices don't suggest that. So what's this about? It's not anything to do with capital values, really. Um, it's all about rising rents, which has been like the big story of 2011. We've seen this big demand from would-be buyers who can't get onto the property market. Um, obviously, the first-time buyers that can't raise a big enough deposit, they're all kind of moving into the um, rental sector. And as a result, we're seeing this kind of rising rents like month after month and um and it's basically because there's a lack of supply of actually buy to let properties available for rental. So presumably borrowers are looking at the fact that there's this big demand, so lots of people to to rent the buy to let properties, but also presumably because the rents are going up 
um, landlords can more easily cover their repayments. That's the case. It's, a, it's the market's looking much more attractive than it was before, and we've also got this case where you know uh, interest rates are expected to stay low for the next two years, so they don't have this risk of kind of you know payments going up, or you know at the moment they can kind of look at this kind of secure rental income coming in. And obviously, um, what we've had loads of um, we've had loads of the property agents all kind of forecast, you know. Next year, we'll still see 3% growth in rents. Even these predictions that at the moment, I think about 15.6% of households are actually renting. And uh, I think everyone's predicting that now, actually, by you know 2015, we're going to see that increase to 20% of households. So there's, there seems to be this steady flow of kind of you know rental demand coming. So it seems much more of a secure prospect for um, buy-to-let landlords. So let's have a look at some of these mortgage offers then. Um, how attractive are they? Are, are, are the criteria slightly more generous than in the past? Well, it's interesting. Um, you obviously mentioned earlier about the fact that we've seen a few more of the, le- the big names come into the market, into the buy-to-let market. So um, we had Santander, obviously, this week. Um, most of the new entrants still seem to be focusing much more on the non-professional landlords. So they're looking for um, buy-to-let investors who only got maybe you know one or two um, buy-to-let properties already. Um, they tend to still be quite restrictive on criteria. With Santander, we've only seen them launch two products this week. Um, both of them are two-year fixed-rate deals. And to be honest, the rates aren't that attractive. So it's not like they're going to see this like sudden rush of people you know, you know, know, looking to snap up these deals. Um, earlier on, also, you mentioned the fact that we've had Yorkshire Building Society enter the market in August. Um, they were quite interesting in, in terms of their kind of initial launch. They sort of limited it to a number of selected postcodes in London and the South East. Um, obviously, don't want to lend to anyone in sort of the North or Midlands at the moment and they also had this um, interesting rule where they said um, the buy-to-let um, landlord has to live within a 40 mile radius of the of the buy-to-let property that they want to buy so it's all it's all very strange rules I mean a lot of people are saying this is great because we're seeing a bit more um, competition come into the market which should eventually um, drive down rates and fees um, but at the moment I don't think these new entrants are going to kind of really stir up the market too much so there's competition with caution and of these um new entrants. Um, who do you think is offering the, the most attractive deal? Well, it's quite interesting. Actually, um, we are seeing Accord Mortgages, which is actually the intermediary of Yorkshire Building Society, which you know is where they're offering their boy to let loans through. Um, they have a lot of attractive deals at the moment. Um, they have a two-year variable rate at 3.89% um, for borrowers with up to 25% deposit. They're also quite attractive on the five-year um, fixed rate horizon, so they're kind of you know going for both the short-term and longer-term deals. Um, one of the most competitive lenders at the moment is Godiva, which is again the intermediary arm of Coventry Building Society. Um, it's interesting when you compare, obviously, what I said earlier about Santander. Um, they're offering a two-year fix at 5.19% for borrowers looking to borrow up to 75% loan-to-value. And when you then compare that to the next, the best buy two-year fixed rate, which is actually from NatWest, that's at 4.39. So there's a, there's a big difference between you know some of the new lenders that have come in and then obviously some of the other more established players, maybe. So you really do need to, to have a look at the uh, at the latest offers and the existing uh, offers side by side. Tanya, thank you very much indeed for that. And for more on those buy-to-let deals, make sure you read Tanya's article in the money section of this weekend's FT. That's all we have time for in this week's FT Money Show. That's all we have time for um, for this year for the FT Money Show. But remember, you will find all of these stories, plus daily news updates, blog posts and top tips on our website, ft.com forward slash money. You can also follow our tweets at twitter.com forward slash FT Money. And if you've got a question you'd like to ask about any aspect of your finances, email us. The address is simply 
ask at ft.com. In the new year, in the first week of January, we'll bring you another financial lowdown in downloadable form. But until then, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from Tanya Elaine and our special guest, Anthony Bolton, President of Investments and Manager of the China Special Situations Fund at Fidelity Worldwide Investments. Goodbye. Goodbye. This is the Financial Times podcast in association with City Index. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to eighty percent less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code Acast for twenty percent off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars. Luxurious Italian leather bags and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and three hundred and sixty-five day returns.